This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Hi, my name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Uh, I apologize for coming in a few minutes late. Um, I actually <laughs> didn't see the time. Um, I am very excited about this conversation. Uh, I heard doc, Dr. David Klatso many years ago uh, speaking on um, on talk radio, I think it was Cape Talk, uh, chatting about this very uh, topic, the Helderberg disaster. I think it was SAA Flight 295. I found what the doctor said to be fascinating. I found the calls that came in afterwards uh, referring to his views as conspiracy theories very interesting. Let me just quickly, before I introduce the doctor, let me just quickly read to you Wikipedia's opening paragraph. So it says, South African Airways Flight 295 was a commercial flight from uh, Taipei in Taiwan to Jan Smuts International. In South Africa with a stopover in Mauritius on the 28th of November 1987, the aircraft serving the flight, um, Boeing 747, named the Helderberg, experienced a catastrophic in-flight fire in the cargo area, broke up in mid-air and crashed into the Indian Ocean just east of Mauritius, killing all 159 people on board. An extensive salvage operation was mounted to try to recover the black box recorders, one of which was recovered from a depth of just under five kilometers. The official inquiry headed by Judge Cecil Margot was unable to determine the cause of the fire. This lack of conclusion led to <laughs> conspiracy theories being advanced and a subsequent post-apartheid investigation in the years following the incident. In other words, the official line is that it was just a fire on board. Good morning, Dr. David Klatso. Good morning. Thank you Good so much for joining me. And I think you're probably the foremost expert on this on this issue. And you've been studying it for years, haven't you? Well, it's occupied a considerable amount of my time for the last 30-odd years. Someone here says in the comments, uh, I was in Mauritius when this happened. Um, can you remember, before we talk about it, can you remember what you were doing on that day? No. No, I don't remember. I also can't, I, but I, I was too young. To I was brought into it. Um, actually, I was appointed by Boeing and their attorneys to investigate an aspect of the of the uh, crash for the Margo inquiry. But subsequently, um, the Saturday Star ran a series of articles which landed them in front of the press council, and I was then appointed by the same set of attorneys to investigate fully the events mm. surrounding the Hilderberg in order to uh, um, defend the, Southern, the uh, Saturday Star at the press council hearings. And that was crucial because the press council hearings were, were a prelude to Arms Corps planning to sue the living daylights out of uh, the newspaper for defamation and damages resulting from that defamation. So it became crucial that they that they had a proper answer to all the problems that arose at the press council meeting. And that's when I did the major inquiry into the Helderberg. And it, it was really a very intense inquiry. Well, let's just start, um, you know, at, at the start. Uh, basically, this was, as you heard there from Wikipedia, a commercial flight, uh, nothing untoward, flying back to South Africa, um, and then this 
explosion happened. I've actually taken the time to go and listen to the black the black box recording. It's very difficult to make out what's going on there. Uh, some strange sounds um, and what sounds like um, a French. Uh, I'm guessing the, somebody in Mauritius talking to the pilot, uh, but. There, there are several there are several recordings, and we need to dissect them out for your listeners. There's the air traffic control, which is legible and audible and very, very easy to obtain. Okay. There's also the so-called cockpit voice recorder, which, uh, for an aircraft such as a Boeing, it's a it's not a cheap piece of kit. Uh, the recording quality from that that recording is appalling beyond words. But there are things that come out of that recording which are vital, absolutely vital. And the first, the first thing that comes out of the recording is the fact that uh, Margot sought to hide part of the recording from the inquiry. Okay, so what happened was, if you go to page 55 of the Margot report, you'll see that there was a, 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 an interchange between um, a pilot called Phil Yun, uh, who represented Ifalpa, and who was not really supposed to participate in this. And Margot asked him whether he was comfortable with the full transcript being uh, played to the, uh, to the awaiting um, inquiry. And he said he had no problem with it at all. And this disconcerted Margot, and he kept questioning him, trying to get him to alter that that acquiescence to having the, the full recording played. Um, and when he finally refused, he didn't know that he was supposed to object to the full recording being played. Margot, on his own and off his own bat, said, "Well, in seeing you're not making an objection, I'm going to rule that the first twenty minutes or the first ten minutes or so not be played." Now that got me interested and. In, after a significant effort and a battle with the authorities, I got a copy of that transcript. And, uh, in fact, I listened to the, the, the uh, I, I read the transcript into my tape recorder and subsequently published it. Now, the key thing there is the following, that in that transcript, you can hear a woman coming into the cockpit and making a comment which is only relevant at the beginning of the flight. Remember, the flight was supposed to, the, the accident was supposed to be a hundred and something miles off the coast of Mauritius, right towards the end of the flight. They're already preparing for descent, okay? And they'd already contacted air traffic control at Mauritius. So that was the, 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 the terminal phase of the flight. And yet a woman comes in the cockpit and says, Captain, you must In other words, Captain, look after tonight's flight. Now, that's in, that is a totally irrelevant comment at the end of the flight. Yeah. That is a which is valid at the beginning of a flight, in the early stages of the flight. The second thing that was on that part of the tape was there's a conversation between the pilots and into Alia, the uh, um, flight engineer whose name was Joe Bellagarda. But you can hear a conversation being pursued along the lines of, Yesi, hiri o vot no hunger. This guy's getting hungry. I advance ons kre ons dinner. 
Now, dinner is a very specific meal. It's not breakfast. It's not mm. lunch. But it is the evening meal. And there's more conversation in the cockpit, which has the ring of truth about it. One, one of the uh, cockpit crew says, oh, it's the same old SAA junk food, which has a serious ring of truth about it. And um, the discussion is about dinner. Now, dinner is served within two hours of takeoff, generally. Yeah. They, they, get, they take you off, they give you a couple of drinks, they then roll out the dinner trolleys. And that's early in the flight. It's not at the, it's not at the top of descent. And immediately after that conversation, you can hear the fire bell going off. And the captain has a few sharp words to say about all the fire bells going off. It, it's a serious issue which he's got there and then. Now, why is that so important? Mm. It's important because it would indicate that there was a fire within two hours of takeoff from Taipei. And the, the set rule, it's set in stone on an aircraft. If you have a fire, there are certain rules and, and they are immutable. The first is put the blessed fire out if you can. The second is once you've done that, land the aircraft because you've got no idea mm. as the pilot. What just, with you guys? Sorry, sorry, quickly, doctor. Can I just stop you there just for a second? How how far is Taipei from Mauritius? In oh, hours? It's at the big, at Taipei. I, I don't know the exact distance, but at Taipei, the Taipei they they would have landed in Mauritius sometime around about midnight. Okay. South African time. Okay. So it was the the that was that business that I'm telling you about the dinner was within two hours of takeoff. The the landing and the final crash of the aircraft was about eight hours or nine hours later. I can't remember the exact times, but it was a significant period later. But the important part about that was that you land the aircraft because you've no idea whether there's structural damage and you don't feel like losing a tail or a wing or anything else uh, on your way home. It's, it's yeah. not good for you. Now, the, the net result of all of that was that uh, he didn't land. He flew on. And Margot sought to hide that piece of information from the inquiry. Now, why do I know that there was a fire outside Taipei? Because we know that the aircraft, and this was vigorously denied by everybody in the inquiry, we know that the aircraft made contact with what was then Jan Smuts Airport saying, we've had a fire and we want to land. And they were refused permission to land, told to fly on to Mauritius, which is where the disaster finally occurred. Now, that's crucial. Okay. Jeez. The second thing about the aircraft, which, or rather the fire, which is crucial, is that in the subsequent investigation and recovery of pieces of the aircraft, they required the air, they found the area of the aircraft which was badly damaged, the piece that was most damaged by the fire. And that piece of the aircraft showed damage to the paintwork on the skin of the aircraft. Now, you must remember that these Boeing 747s flying at 30-odd thousand feet, the temperature outside is in the low, it's the minus 20, 30, sometimes even lower. And we could calculate from the damage to the skin what temperature the fire was inside in order to produce that damage 
And on doing the calculations, those calculations showed there was a fire of hotter than normal temperature. A normal wood, paper, cardboard, fire, plastic will normally not burn much hotter than about 900 to 1,000 degrees. But we know that this fire was significantly hotter than that. And that indicates something very important, which was totally ignored by Margot. Namely, that the fire contained its own oxygen. In other words, whatever was burning contained its own oxygen. Normally, when you burn a piece of paper, cardboard, whatever, you're relying on the oxygen from the atmosphere yeah. to fuel yeah. that fire. Because a fire is a combination of the material that you've got with oxygen. Yeah. Okay. And you need oxygen in order for a fire to burn. And that's how you put a fire out. You smother the oxygen supply. But when you've got something which carries its own oxygen, yeah. you can't do that. And the only things that carry their own oxygen which are of relevance here are substances which are quite unstable. And they're usually found in military explosives and propellants and that sort of thing, such as trinitrotoluene, TNT, carries its own oxygen. But in this case, we know that it was probably uh, a substance called ammonium perchlorate. Okay? Now, why is that important? Ammonium perchlorate is effectively the main component of a rocket propellant. And we know that at that stage in 87, the Russians had brought new MiGs into Angola. And those MiGs were exacting a toll on the aging fleet of the South African Air Force. They had mirages. We were running out of spares. We were running out of mirages. And the new MiGs were knocking down the South African mirages. And this caused panic because <clears throat> you lose the air battle, you lose the ground battle. And consequently, the we, we have a fair amount of evidence that the rockets that were available were not functioning well against these new fast fighters. So the hierarchy of the military needed to get faster rockets or better rockets. And I think they were probably given rockets. Remember, we were fighting a proxy war for Britain and we were fighting a proxy war for America in the Angolan campaign to keep communism out of Africa, which was the primary concern of everybody. And yeah. South Africa and all the others were fighting this proxy. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, what they needed to do was that that rocket fuel was given to South Africa, some rocket fuel, because starting to develop a rocket fuel is a time consuming process. But if you're given a sample which works, you can reverse engineer it. Mm. You can analyze it and make it in two shakes of a duck's tail. And they were given samples to try, and those samples were what were being flown back on the Helderberg. And the pilot, Darby Ace, knew that. He knew it was dangerous. He made a fuss about flying with it. He was also, he was also carefully selected amongst the pilots of SAA as being a trusted member who could be given this assignment. He, he was not a real man. So are you suggesting, David, that the pilot, the captain, knew what was in the cargo? Beyond a shadow of doubt. 
beyond a shadow of doubt. Now, one of the people who criticized me uh, about this theory, about forcing the pilot to fly on, was uh, that late unlamented journalist uh, Robert Kirby. But Kirby was a fool. He, he, said, he said that uh, the pilot had absolute control over what he would do, and he could override anything from anybody and land that plane wherever he wanted. And that's absolutely true, unless he was committed to the crime, or rather he was involved in the crime that was being committed. And that's where everything went wrong. Because yeah. if, if he was part of that crime and SAA uh, ditched him, they threw him under the bus, then he was on his own. And if SAA turned around and said, we're not going to support you, this is a frolic of your own, he was in deep trouble. And that's why he flew on. He could not afford to land and have the hold searched. Yeah. And by the way, aircraft fires are exceptionally toxic. The, the, the Manchester fire on the ground, which lasted not more than under, under a minute, produced significant casualties. Can you imagine the casualties when you've got this major fire with all the toxic gases in a closed cylinder yeah. at 36,000 feet? So, and so, no fact that they had deaths on board at that early stage. So on his way back mm. to Mauritius from the South China Sea, Ace was effectively flying a coffin. So I just want to, I, I just want to quickly uh, uh, summarize where you where you're at. So the plane left Taipei. The captain knew. Was it just the captain, or was it his crew as well that knew? Well, you see, the crew, the the crew were also in a difficult spot because they thought they would get back to Mauritius in one piece. They, I think, they got that first fire out. In fact, there's no doubt they got the first fire out. So there were multiple fires? There was at least two fires. Yeah. And, okay, so the plane left Taiwan with this dangerous stuff in the cargo. Passengers obviously had no idea. Yeah. Um, two hours after after takeoff, they, had, they encountered some problems and they weren't allowed to turn around and go and land. No. So they had to continue straight on. <laughs> They could have got into Diego Garcia in an emergency. It's an American military base. They could have landed at a whole range of areas in that particular Indian Ocean area. But who who then prohibited, prohibited them from landing? This is a very interesting question because the, the aircraft was in constant communication with a radio station at what was then Jansmuts Airport called ZUR. It was also called Radio Springbok in contrast to Springbok Radio, but it was Radio Springbok or ZUR. And that radio station was capable of patching through a communication from the aircraft to anybody anywhere. And I think that the first thing that happened is they patched it through to Gert van der Fier, who knew about it. And they then got higher authority and bigger guns on board in the form of probably, probably Magnus Milan. It might even be Pak who said, you guys get your act together and get here fast. So, so I think Ace was cowed into making a wrong decision. And I think he was also deeply, deeply compromised by virtue of the fact that it would have been easy to prove that he knew it was on board. I mean, there was a, a cargo manifest and he knew, he knew why he'd been selected. 
Yeah. Because he was a man who suffered from a condition which required heavy steroid treatment. Okay. And he so, was on steroids. Now, you do not want your captain of an aircraft flying on steroids. Okay. Because <laughs> True. it's simple. It, it, affects, it affects your adrenal function. Mm. And you don't want your captain taking a, a laid-back attitude in an emergency. It's not, it's not good flying practice. Mm. And yet he's chosen, and they, and they falsified his medical reports to enable him to fly this mission. So they flew on knowing that there were problems in the cargo. They just basically aimed for Mauritius and, and hoped that they could land in one piece. And well, Yeah. If you listen to the Mauritius air traffic control tape, Ace was quite confident of landing that aircraft. He was quite confident. Uh, not only was he confident, he chose the longer, there are two approaches into Mauritius, and he chose the longer approach. Now, there's a reason for that. It, it, you know, when you've got a damaged aircraft, you want, a, you want a longer, uh, 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 you want an approach which will give you time to adjust and mm. take all sorts of precautions. But if you are, if you're about to fall out of the sky, you want the quickest way in possible. And Ace chose the longer approach. And suddenly, sure. we're getting, getting details from Mauritius about the cloud cover and the wind speed and the what have you. And suddenly, they went off the radio and never heard from again. So something catastrophic happened there. Okay, so did, did anybody any, anywhere else know... What was on board? I mean, for example, did did the airport in Mauritius know, or no? Was there anything ab abnormal no. about this flight? To, according no. to them, N nothing. The airport in Mauritius didn't know. But what is very interesting is this: is that Martin Vels flew over to Taipei within days of the aircraft going missing, and he found already the cargo manifests had been destroyed. And somebody who knew about the cargo manifest mysteriously died in a motor accident and was run over by a car, I think, in 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 Taipei. What? So it was it was all very very conspiratorial, and the 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 SAA were coming along with this notion that we're recon we are reconstructing the manifest. What absolute rubbish! You keep your manifests. Mm. All sorts of problems can arise if you don't have an original copy of the manifest. So how come those manifests were destroyed within 48 hours of the aircraft going down? Very curious. How many fires were on board that, uh, that you know of? You said one was put out. Well, I think there were a minimum of two fires. There was the fire which occurred in and around the serving of dinner. Now, the cockpit crew are served dinner from the first-class galley in and around the same time as the first-class passengers. And that is invariably within two to three hours of takeoff. It might have been a bit longer because one of the problems they had, they took off late. And they ran into a tropical cyclone in the South China Sea area. And that produced some very rough flying. And that was where the problem began because uh, ammonium, friction. ammonium perchlorate is sensitive to impact. And if you toss that stuff around, it's not good for your health. 
it's not meant to be tossed around. It's got a low impact ignition um, uh, sensitivity. So now, stuff to have on board an aircraft. I don't. I don't recommend that you fly with it on board. No, for sure. But now, okay. So let's just quickly let's just go backwards just a little bit. Is there any evidence that? any of this cargo was put onto the plane? Or is there any documentation at all anywhere? It's all um, been destroyed. Sure. It's all been destroyed. And that, so, that again, is, is very curious. And, and by the way, the, 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 the recording of Ace asking, saying he'd had a fire and asking to land was recorded at ZUR. It was on record at ZUR, and that tape went missing mysteriously. That tape, amongst all the others, there were 30 tapes at ZUR, 32 tapes. That tape went missing. And I cross-examined Gert van der Feer at the TRC hearing into the Hildeberg. And his answers were blatant lies. He gave. He was under oath. He gave me at least three different versions, and one of which was that he tore a strip off the man who um, who who lost the tape. And when I put it to him that I had evidence that the tape was handed into his hands, Jeez. and I then asked him, "How could you have torn a strip off the man who lost the tape when it appears that that man was you?" And his answer was, I have no answer to that question. And Gert van der Feer is an absolute, consummate, blatant liar. The other thing about it is somebody else who knew about the, the goings on, on board that aircraft was the captain's wife, Jana Ace. She was approached by the prosecuting authority in the form of Tori Pretorius from Pretoria, a statement was taken in it was in manuscript and she refused to sign the typed version of that statement what was her reason she gave no reason she she demanded certain guarantees now one would and when i put it when i put it to the investigating advocate uh, in in this matter that the only guarantee that she could be demanding was that the hush money for her knowledge be guaranteed because they could never have touched her pension even if her husband had been flying contraband cargo they could never have touched her pension she would have had them in court in two shakes of a duck's tail but the hush money was illegal and that is the only basis when I put it to advocate Welsh that that could be the only and I invited him to give me a better explanation. His answer to me was, I cannot give you a better explanation. My word. Okay. So, so she refused to sign it. And when, when I said to him, but you've got means in, in terms of the Criminal Procedure Act of forcing her to come to court and give that evidence. There's a section called 205. You could have 205'd her and brought her to court under duress, if necessary, in handcuffs. And he said to me at the time, he must have thought I was a complete fool. He said to me, we can't use 205 unless a criminal charge has been laid. That's rubbish. That is absolute rubbish. The police are able to use 205. If, if, you, if you find a body and you think that there's a suspect or somebody who's got vital evidence, 
You can 205 them immediately. And in fact, the press were 205. It was a means of bullying the press in the apartheid years. They would lock them up under Section 205 until they gave a statement. Mm. Many sat in jail for days, weeks, months. But, Doctor, why why this flight? Um, why not Why not other military flights? Did the South African Airways not have capabilities? No. No. You see, they were breaking an international arms embargo. And at that stage, you couldn't just fly military aircraft into Taipei and load up the stuff and fly home. That, that would have caused too much, excuse me, please explain. And what happened was, they were doing things surreptitiously. And by the way, SAA was a constant uh, participant in this kind of nonsense. Ten years later, they were they were flying military hand grenades to Argentina on, on a passenger aircraft. Still? They were doing yeah. it still? Yeah. Yo, that's scary. Piece of advice for your clients. You do not want to fly on an aircraft carrying military explosives. Not good for you. And passengers didn't even know this. How do you know this then? Because because the Argentinian authorities picked it up, and there was a piece, I've got a, a newspaper report about it, never denied by the South African Airways. And in fact, when I put it to Mac Maharaj on radio okay, at the time, uh, he said it was all discussed on, uh, and it's, it's, it's in, it was discussed in Parliament, and it's all on, on um, Hansard. Well, we looked through Hansard, and it's not there. Jeez. And Mac was part of this. So Mac knew about it, and, and so did Dalla Omar. They all were part of the conspiracy. Dalla Omar launched an absolutely pathetic second investigation, which consisted of doing absolutely nothing. And all they did was they launched this, they said they'd done it, and nothing new came out. And by the way, Margot, after spending weeks and weeks and weeks in the Margot inquiry, uh, the the first thing the first thing that was said and that was legible and audible by Ace was, Mauritius, Mauritius, we have a smoke problem. Jeez. And Margot's final finding in the thing was that there was a fire on board. Well, I could have told you that was spending one and six on phoning me up and asking me, and I can tell you that where there's smoke, there's usually a fire. <laughs> Literally, so that, yes. It was a genius piece by Margot, and I accused Margot at the time. I, I said publicly that his report was not worth the paper it was written on. I accused him at the time of dishonesty. Why didn't he sue me? Why didn't yes, he well, the yeah. So how many people were involved in this conspiracy? This is what it is. It literally is a conspiracy. Yes, it is. It, the, the military, the upper, upper echelons of the military, SAA, SAA was for a long time running stuff for, um, um, for, the, for the, the military. I mean, they brought in a massive consignment of hair dryers. Maybe, maybe there were a lot of people in the, air, in, the, in, the, in the military who needed their hair dried. But these were not... These were military items that were brought in. So they weren't and head we Using SA. We know that there's no question about it that they that they were acting to bring in military stuff in the war, the holy war that the apartheid regime was fighting against against uh, everybody else. All right. So <clears throat> now what 
what then was the 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 government line? The Wikipedia, for example, ends off by saying that it, the cause of fire is undetermined and it was just a, um, a fire. Well, yeah, well, that's that that is wrong. And if you look further into Wikipedia, you'll see that my theory is placed is is there present in Wikipedia. Okay, if you go a little further, uh, you'll see that that my notion of this particular set of events is there. Um, and uh, the 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 government line has never made sense whatsoever. The missing tape has never made sense. The uh, the damage to the fuselage, which was ignored by Margot, never made sense. The the attempt by Margot to block that piece of evidence that I spoke to you about from entering the 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 the, the, the public record, never been explained. Margot never explained it. And That's, it's. Of, it's unheard of for the judge to ask for an objection to a piece of evidence that's going to be run. Do you have an objection? No. You mean you're not going to make any objection? No. Well, what are you objecting to? Nothing. Well, I'm going to make a ruling that we don't listen to the first part of the tape. That piece is surreal. It is Kafkaesque. So... It sounds as though this is a this is an impossible battle to win then, because what you're saying is always going to be um, denied by by the uh, authorities. Yes, well, the the South African authorities have got a long and proud history of denying everything. I never I never believe anything until it's been denied by the government. <laughs> but wouldn't it be an interesting? I mean. Wouldn't it be an interesting case today? I mean, for the current regime, which is quite different to the previous regime, wouldn't wouldn't it be in their interests to to show, hey, look, this is what they did? No, I'll tell you why not. This is a question which has often been asked of me. Mm. You must remember that that aircraft was insured through Lloyd's Insurance. Through I beg your pardon, you broke yes. up through who? Lloyd's Insurance. Lloyd's. Okay, now. Lloyd's Insurance take a dim view of civilian aircraft carrying military explosives, and they would not have paid out. But much more than that, there were 159 or so people on board, 157, 159 people on board, who would have a serious claim against SAA for the loss of income, the loss of livelihood, loss of everything. Mm. <clears throat> that claim... And the Lloyd's claim would have sunk SAA then and might really have been a very good thing had it done so, given the subsequent history. Mm. The, and and the, 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 the ANC government could not afford to have that come out. And that's why Dalla Omar and Mac Maharaj both went into overdrive with their disinformation about the thing. Kerry that's has a question. And by the way, I think that if you could show, if 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 a new inquiry showed that, I think those claims might be reawakened. Mm. Well, Kerry has a question for you, Doctor. Um, is Justice Margot still alive? And if so, uh, he should be brought to trial for perjury at least. Surely there are some government people who would want to tell the truth. Okay. Now, Margot has long been dead. He's. I've always said Margot is now in hell finding out exactly what happened to the Helderberg. <laughs> Okay. And it's a great pity because in many ways, Margot was a good legal mind. He became attached to the ideology of the day. Remember, he was a military man. 
He flew during the war and he was essentially a military man and he bought into the ideology of the nationalist government and he was involved in a whole range of inquiries which are dodgy. Mm. Okay. The Hildeberg was not the only one which was dodgy. The loss of the writ book is equally dodgy. Of Port, I think it was Port Elizabeth. Okay. Port Alford, I think, That's wasn't it? Equally dodgy. And he was SAA's go-to advocate in the days when he was still an advocate. So Margot was not the right man to chair that inquiry. And he's not alive. He's, he's now well and truly dead. Um, and I hope somebody's explaining the Hildeberg to him. How many, how many people have been on your team over the years? Um, because you are sort of the poster child uh, for, for this particular investigation. Okay. The, the only people who've been consistently on my team is the son of one of the people who died on the Hildeberg. His name is Peter Otson. Okay. But by and large, this has been a fairly lone battle. Hang on. He was, he was on the flight. No. His father was on the flight. Oh, he was beg your born pardon, sorry. days after his father was killed on that flight. There's a question that someone's asking. Were there any important people on the flight? There were. And they got off shortly before the flight took off. What? Yep. In, in Taiwan? Yep. There Do you were, know who there they were? were? There were senior people, people involved. There was one important fellow who worked for, he was a procurement fellow, and I'll think of his name in a minute. But he was on the flight and went down with the flight. He, he was, he was ace, the pilot insisted he come on board. Uh, he worked. He walked, worked for the Indust IDC, the Industrial Development Corporation, I think. Um, but the the point about it was that there were there were senior people in the know who insisted that they be taken off the flight. Sheesh, and and that's because they they had an idea that this was an incredibly dangerous flight, and they didn't want to take any chances. And I mean, let's just be let's just be honest with ourselves here. Um, the pilot and his crew, uh, even being aware of this, um, didn't want to die. Obviously, so they didn't think that anything would go wrong. Well, they thought they'd got the first fire out, and that mm. is what that is what helped them make the decision to fly onto Mauritius, which would be much more easy for the government to control the investigations, etc., etc., at Mauritius, than mm. it would be if plane had landed at a military airbase in Diego Garcia or in, or even flown to Bombay or any one of those areas where it was quite capable of, of uh, flying to. Somebody would have gone into the hold and said, hey, what the hell have you got here? And by the way, why are you flying all these bodies around? Because there were deaths on board that aircraft early on in the flight. What? I didn't know that. Yep. You know, when when plastics, okay, you've got a closed cylinder with a limited amount of air coming in. Now, if you've got a fire on board, you don't want to increase the air coming in because you'll increase the, the intensity of the fire. So you've stuck for a moment with what you've got. But an burning plastic, particularly the seats, are made of polyurethane. Polyurethane, when it burns, produces cyanide gas. Okay. The gas itself, the other gases which it produces, when you burn 
the uh, insulation of, on the wiring, that is polyvinyl chloride. It produces hydrochloric acid in vapor form. Mm, mm. And it also produces, with a limited oxygen, a fair amount of carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide. Now, a finer combination to kill people would be very hard to imagine. Cyanide, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and pool acid. So we know that there were deaths on board, and we know that early on in that flight, the aircraft was trimmed out to take every single passenger and put them in the nose of the aircraft as far away from the fire as possible. So what, they were pushed into all the empty every, seats in the front? Everybody in the aircraft was crammed into first class, in the nose of the aircraft. And we know that because the trim tab uh, screws were recovered off Mauritius, and the trim settings were could only be explained with having the passengers sitting in, you know, dragged or lying in the front. Would the captain have known this? Absolutely. He's the Jeez. man doing the swimming. Gee, this is a proper disaster, David. It, absolutely. It, it, is, it is one in of every the sense. great tragedies of, of the 20th century. And it was, it was all so unnecessary. Um, I've got a, a comment here from Kyle. He says, There's a, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence um, to support uh, what you're saying. However, there is still far too much speculation. Can the Angolan war not be justified and, you know, and the means to fight it? Well, that's not speculation. That's a political decision. Okay? And whether you fought the Angolan war or not, you must remember there was a clash of ideologies. <clears throat> for most of the 20th century. The clash of ideologies was the Western way of doing things versus the communist way of doing things. And in many instances, the CIA, America, Britain, all were part and parcel of trying to prevent communism from spreading through Africa. And and the, 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 the USSR was very keen to spread communism through Africa. And they were very successful. Yo, um, do you know perhaps um, anything about what the passengers knew? I mean, if they were all pushed to the nose, what would they have been told, do you think? I don't know what they were told, but their, their options were limited at that stage, whatever they were told. Okay. And I doubt, I doubt that Ace would have said, look, we've got military stuff on board and and. and, mm. and. Um, I don't think I don't think it's the captain's job to increase the panic amongst these passengers, but I think I think that by the time that they were up in the front, uh, they were either they either got there on their own or they were pulled there or dragged there semi-conscious. So are you saying, yo, I don't want to even say this out loud, but are you saying, David, that after that after the two-hour mark? People on board started dying. There were deaths on board. No question about it. You remember the Manchester, a smaller Boeing caught fire on the runway at Manchester Airport. And despite the fact that everybody was off that plane in under two minutes, there was still 50% or that sort of number of casualties with deaths. That, that concoction and mixture of gases that come from a fire on board an aircraft 
are truly lethal. Yes, I don't know what to say. I, I'm flabbergasted. I didn't know some of this. So, yep. wouldn't wouldn't it have been the morally right decision for the captain to have turned the plane around and gone and landed? I know we've we've sort of covered why he was prohibited, but couldn't he have forced a landing if he was worried? He could have forced a landing, but remember he was compromised. And remember he thought he could get back to Mauritius onto more friendly soil. I think I think probably what was said to him was, you land that aircraft, you're going to have to do some please explaining. And you may very well find that you've traded your captain's seat for a jail cell for the foreseeable future. Plus, the information would have got out very quickly. And that information, I mean, that information that the SAA was flying military cargo on board is not a great advertising gimmick. You know, they used to have, we fly your way. Yo. We, did, we didn't invent flying, we just perfected it. All those lovely little sayings would have gone into the into file 13 and the waste paper basket had this information been. It would have sunk SAA then. And not only that, no country in the world would have allowed South African aircraft to fly into their airspace knowing that they were flagrantly breaking IATA rules in this fashion. It would have been the end of SAA. Somebody wants to know, is there any documentation that is currently still classified or, or uh, conversely unclassified, I guess? I don't know. I don't know. Incidentally, I've written about this quite extensively um, in a whole range of areas, but in particular, the two chapters which cover this whole story in a book that I wrote a few years ago called Steeped in Blood, which is available on Kindle and Amazon still. It's out of print now, but it, it, mm. it's still available. I can put that information under the video if people are interested. Um, I'll do it after the show. But Nigel's got a question. He says, does the, uh, the, does the doctor think that the captain deliberately crashed, um, ditched no. the plane, knowing very well the outcome of the investigation? No, I don't think so. I don't think he deliberately crashed. I think at the time of the last communication with the airport at Mauritius, the air traffic control at Mauritius, uh, he was planning to land that aircraft. And probably sweating heavily. Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, I think he was, uh, he was, the, the, you can hear the stress levels in his voice. Okay. Would he have been, would he have been protected by the South African government? How do you protect that? It, it was too big for the South African government. Had that information that I've given you now come out then, mm. it was too big to protect by any government. Jeez. So and, he was on his own, is what you're saying? He just went into a wall of silence. And as I say, you know, I, I would, if I had my way, I would, Section 205, and I'd lock him up until he told me the truth. Um, doctor, what do you think actually happened then in the air? Was there an explosion or did the fire just overwhelm the flame? I don't know. I, I do not know. Senior SAA officials, uh, people who were quite high up in SAA, maintained that the aircraft was shot down. I've never had any proof of that. 
and that and that's why I've never said that publicly. Mm. But what do you uh, think, though? I mean, just what do you think personally? I don't know. Okay, I'm not prepared to speculate about that. But I mean, if you're flying an aircraft, which what you may want to ask your listeners is this: Let's assume that aircraft landed with bodies on board. What would be the official line? No, I don't know. That's... As you, if you were P.W. Buerta, what would have been your official line when an SAA Boeing, which was flying a routine passenger flight, landed with a whole lot of bodies and a fire caused by military explosives? What would you have told the public? Was 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 P.W. was P.W. the prime minister at the time? Yeah. P.W. was the prime minister at the time. And uh, there's no question about it that, that he knew about what was going on. Um, hey, ask, and, and someone's yeah. saying that the Mauritius government would have done a major investigation as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it would have... The moment that aircraft landed, it would have been outside the purview of uh, the authorities in South Africa to stop the story spreading. Mm. Um, some people have joined a bit late. Would you mind just quickly repeating what was this dangerous cargo that was in the hull? Okay, it was okay. It was a it was a substance called ammonium perchlorate, and it probably the the reason that the South Africa Arms Corps had the ability to make ammonium perchlorate. But in exactly the same way, if people put additives into petrol to make it burn better and faster mm. and accelerates and, and, and modifiers into the thing, that part of producing the rocket fuel takes time. Making ammonium perchlorate is child's play. I could make you enough to keep you going for a long time with limited equipment. Mm. But getting it to the point where it actually propels the rocket properly is a different kettle of fish. And what happens there is that you've got to test it and do this and add a bit of that and take a bit of this away and mix it. You know, it's like it's like doing an, a recipe for a new cake. You add a bit more flour, you add a few less eggs, you put a bit more baking powder in. Mm, mm, mm. All of this has got to be done. That's the bit that takes the time. Slapping together flour and eggs and water is two minutes' work. But getting the rocket fuel to perform adequately is another thing altogether. And they couldn't, they didn't have the time. So what was given to them, probably by either either the Thatcher government or the Reagan government, was a sample of something that did work, that was that was the state-of-the-art stuff. And that stuff was probably tracked to Taipei because mm. there were routes that, that evaded, um, evaded uh, uh, scrutiny. Taipei was one of them. I mean, Taipei was, although it was a military regime, people have been open about the fact that very little, very little attention was paid to cargo coming in and out. What they used to do is they used to simply cover it for a while, keep it in, in storage for a, a while so that any time-delayed bombs would go off on the ground, but uh, there was no proper inspection of cargo whatsoever. I must say, I am flabbergasted by some of the stuff that you said. I didn't know um, um, a lot of this. Uh, I, I knew the, the, the basics. And Rion in the comments says, yeah, lots of interesting aspects raised by David. 
Uh, however, lots of what David says is speculation. I can't believe a captain even compromised would have flown a flight with dead passengers on board. Well, you must remember that these were military men. Ace, Ace was a military man. And although he'd flown for SA for a long time, he, he, he was still a military man. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you are always prepared to take a chance. And, and you know, people were so bought into the ideology of fighting this, this war against the, 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 the communist ideology that they were prepared to do strange things. Okay? Um, and clearly, Ace thought he could get away with his flight. Mm. And it was the end. There was, there was probably a sufficient financial incentive for him at the end of it. It was one of his last flights. Might have been his last flight, in fact, uh, even if he hadn't crashed. Um, and, uh, you know, you sail off into the sunset with your golden handshake. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that everything I've told you is non-speculative. We know that there was a substance on board that was burning hotter than normal. We know that Margot tried to cover up the first fire. We've got three separate witnesses to the fact that the plane had contacted SAA uh, radio station and asked to land and been refused. Three separate witness statements I've got. We know, we know for a fact that uh, the, the aircraft had a fire outside Mauritius. We know for a fact that it didn't land. We know for a fact that that is against aircraft regulations and against the basic flying principles. We know for a fact that there were cover-ups on the ground in the in the destruction of the manifest within a day or two of, of the accident. We know all of that. There's none of that that's speculation. And I would I would invite Rion to give me a better explanation yeah. as to why the ZR tape disappeared. How did that disappear? And why did why did Gert van der Fier lie about it? And why did Margot by the way, Margot having tried to prime this objection out of uh, the the pilot uh, who didn't know he was supposed to, he was a patsy, he didn't know he was supposed to make an objection. The guy who'd been briefed to make the objection arrived, he got caught in traffic and he arrived an hour late. And then he made the objection. Okay, his name was Dutoy. So, you know, it, it that if anything is the smoking gun that Margot left. And Margot was in on this. Um, Devet says, I spoke to somebody, uh, somebody who was a crew controller at SAA, and he said that all the crew were trying to get off that flight. You see, I don't know, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But if, if, if that is true, and I'd, I've never had, SAA has always been a closed book to me. Um, and uh, at the time of my inquiry, they were involved in a wage, the pilots, the, the pilots association were involved in a wage dispute. And I suspect that they may have been using their knowledge as a lever to get a better wage settlement. I, I've got no proof of that. That is speculative. Mm. But it has always been an absolutely closed book to me. There's a question here. Were any parts of the wreckage recovered uh, which showed oh. evidence of ab abnormally high combustion temperatures? Yes, I've just told you that. Yeah. The, the fire took place in the front right-hand pallet 
on the aircraft. That aircraft was what is called a combi. Mm. Now, a combi is different from the normal aircraft. Normally, a 747 has got a passenger um, area, okay, the deck which carries the passengers, and then underneath that is the cargo hold. That was an aircraft which had passenger and cargo on the same deck. And at the back, you, you Jeez, came to a bunker, and you went to the back, and on the front right-hand pallet was where the fire started. And the, the wreckage of the, the fuselage, the fuselage of, of the aircraft above that fire, fires burn hot as, as you, as you, you know, fires burn up. Mm. The, the, the fuselage was found there. And that fuselage was the piece where we, we could establish that the temperature is way in excess of what is called a diffusion fire, normal paper, cardboard, wood fire. Mm. It could not have been at that. Isabel says, my cousin died on, on that flight, um, and the direct family members have never got answers to what happened. Of course not. I'm going to have a heart attack and die of not surprise. The government <laughs> was hell-bent on covering yeah. up everything they could, including the ANC government, by the way. Just a quick question. Um, uh, we haven't spoken about this, but that airplane obviously flew from South Africa to Taiwan originally. Was that just a normal passenger flight? Normal passenger flight. May have been cargo on board. Right. I don't know. Um, and that was just, there was nothing untoward about that particular flight. Um, but they knew at the time that there was something in, in Taiwan that they were going to collect. Ace knew that. And in fact, there, there's some evidence that Ace made a fuss about it. And uh, he insisted on an arms corps representative being on board the aircraft before he took off. That's one of the reasons why the flight was delayed by a few hours. Oh, because they were having arguments. Well, there was that debate. And not only was there that debate, but he was waiting for the special passenger to arrive and be put on board. Okay, so Rian's got an, another question then. So, so Ace knew that if they landed, there would be problems. Why then would he have then carried on to Mauritius? Because even landing there would have been problematic. Well, it would have been less problematic because Mauritius was very much more of a South African sphere of influence than Bombay mm. or Diego Garcia. So... If you've got to choose the lesser of the two evils, Mauritius is way in ahead of the pack. Mark is asking a question. I don't know who this person is. Maybe you do. He says, did Yvonne Bellegarde know anything about this? Yes, she did. Who is she? Yvonne Bellegarde. Well, okay. Yvonne, I'm afraid she's not dead. But Yvonne was the wife of the flight engineer, Joe Bellegarde. And she was she. By the way, the 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 people who came, there, there were various pilots who formed a pilot a, a pilot and, and crew report, and they were called into Margot's chambers at the High Court in Johannesburg, and threatened. Guys, you know nothing about this. Quote: This is a matter of national security. Why passenger flight? And and the most chilling comment made by Margot was, harm could come to you if you pursue your investigations. Good heavens. And I've got an affidavit from Yvonne Bellegarde to that effect. 
Yeah. Good heavens. Okay. David, uh, we, we've gone over an hour, but can I hold you for a few more minutes? Of course. There are quite a lot of comments, quite a lot of people watching now, I'm glad to say. Lots of interest in this. Um, okay, can I? let me just read you a few questions at random here. Um, Kyle wants to know, what about the fact that several 747 combis had fires in their cargo holds due to defective wiring, and that was proven? You know, if you've got a if you've got a defective wiring, it doesn't explain the damage to the skin of the aircraft. That's the first thing. Secondly, there are not a lot of seven forty seven. The seven forty seven is one of the most successful aircrafts until the fuel crisis of all times. They they were not prone to catching fire and falling down. Mm. So I don't know where he gets that information, and I'd be very grateful if he could send it to you and you could pass it on to me. Mm. But I'm not aware of fires in the holes. There are fires in other aircraft caused by other things. Okay, But that particular aircraft was not prone to fires. It was an excellent aircraft. Just as a matter of interest quickly, uh, this kind of thing wouldn't happen today now, surely? Why not? I what mean, are there still... Any government today is any less mendacious and dishonest no, that's... than... No, that's not what I mean. No, no, I'm, the <laughs> I'm on the same page as you. What I mean is that there, there aren't these embargoes, or are there? Well, there are embargoes all over the place. I mean, Trump mm. and his mates are are, uh, are embargoing countries China. in the Middle East. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and sure, then, I understand. But I mean, SAA? I don't know. Well, SAA is not flying at the moment. It's... Uh, it's it's one of the greatest safety measures introduced in the last <laughs> and also financial. I'm not pro SAA. I'm not either. <laughs> but they're certainly very safe right now. <laughs> um, Actually, I must tell you something. SAA had a very good safety record until the Helderberg. They had a, they had a few. They had the Pretoria, which crashed at Vintook. They had the Reebok, uh, which crashed off, I think it was Port Elizabeth, and they had the Hildeberg. And Margot, by the way, was involved in all of those. And the other the other dodgy inquiry in which Margot was involved was the death of Samora Michelle. That was highly oh. dodgy. He was, the, he was the judge who overheard that, uh, that inquiry, that inquest. <laughs> Let me take another question for you from Nigel. He says, if the substance if the substance was unstable, a bit of a tongue twister there, uh, would not the substance be also uh, dangerous in ground transport? Sure, but but you see, if you if number number one, if you've got it in a limited packaging on board a mm. ship or a military aircraft, you're not endangering the life of passengers. And if you if you're transporting it by means of a ship. There are ways of, of isolating that. I mean, a ship is far less vulnerable uh, if you've got that in a particularly specialized hold uh, than an aircraft, which is at 32,000 feet. I mean, but they were in a pump, rush. Can, you can pump all the, all the water in the world onto the fire. Mm. Yeah, and they were in a hurry, weren't they? Yeah. Now, I think there was panic by the Air Force and the military. I think Magnus Milan knew about this. 
and I think there was panic. There was panic about the war in Angola and the new the new onslaught of the Russian mix that were particularly effective. And they were certainly you must remember the 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 air force was running out of mirages and they were old. It was old technology, and the new MIGs were were certainly although probably SAA had better pilots, but the new technology was cutting edge stuff which made it difficult for everybody. Nigel has a question. He says, ask, ask David about the commission of inquiry um, that Justice Margot chaired in the crash that killed UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld. I don't know anything about it. But if it was Margot, it was dodgy. <laughs> I think that's the theme of the day. Um, yeah. All right. Tragedy, you, know, you know what is interesting? Um... After I put out all the stuff about Margot, somebody somebody put a posting up on on all over the place that the reason I was anti-Margot was that he'd made a credibility finding against me in a case in which I'd appeared before him. Now, I certainly did appear in one case before him, and he certainly did make a credibility finding on me, namely that he found me to be a most impressive witness. <laughs> So, so much for that piece of misinformation. Um, Rion, again, wants to know, all right, in your view, how would ACE have gotten away with this? Because you yourself said that even landing in Mauritius would have led to problems. It's a good question. Well, he he may well have got away with it uh, to a lesser extent. That he, he would probably have been able to make it back to South Africa. And there would have been a great deal more governmental control over whatever happened at Mauritius than in Bombay. Mm. There would have been no government influence in Bombay. So I don't know the answer to that question. And I don't know what the final moments of the Hilderberg were. I just don't know. Um, I, I don't know if this is relevant, but okay. Anna Marie wants to know how many passengers could the, the airplane uh, seat? And was it a full? Was it a full flight? I think I think the passenger area was relatively full. Yeah, there there were one hundred and fifty seven, hundred and fifty nine people, passengers and crew. Oh, oh I think it was exactly. one. Th- yeah, yeah. In that. Um, and uh, someone else wants to know: Did did SAA also transport firearms in that period? Well, they were transporting hand grenades. <laughs> transporting hand grenades to Argentina at the time. <laughs> hand grenades. In a, in a moment of whimsy, I phoned the SA cargo people and I said, I put on an accent and I said, hello, I want to transport some hand grenades. Oh, one of the things that Mac Maraj said, in the particular area of the thing, is that they took out, they took out the, 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 the detonators. So right. I phoned up SA and I said, hello, hello, I, uh, I want to transport some hand grenades. Uh, can I package them and send them by parcel post? <laughs> Nearly had kittens, and I said, "But don't worry, I'll take the I'll take the detonators out and package them separately." He had some more kittens. I mean, it it was the height of irresponsibility, because you see, the 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 explosive material in a hang. If you have even a small fire in the hold with hand grenades, you're in for big trouble. (laughs) Um, I've got I've got. All right, so. Store. Someone disagrees with you. Yeah. Morton says rubbish. We upgraded our mirages with Israeli help. Uh, this this doctor 
is nothing but a bitter and twisted old liberal. I'm 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 out of here. I don't know. I don't know anything about what he's saying. But is there any truth to to the first part of his comment about Israeli help? There was there was assistance from Israel to upgrade the mirages, but remember, I didn't say the mirages. The, remember, we were running out of mirages. Mm. Okay, and remember that the problem was not necessarily the mirage. It was the, it was the air-to-air missiles or the surface-to-air missiles. So, 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 there you are. I mean, yeah. you can your listeners can make up your mind how bitter and twisted I am. But, <laughs> look, uh, um, look, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Can I tell you what? Personal attacks and what I call ad hominem attacks yeah. are never a good argument. No, they're not. They're not. Um, I might, have might on my looks as well. <laughs> I absolutely. Have loved this conversation, um, Doctor. Uh, let me read you one last comment from Rita. So let me just tell you, the overwhelming majority of comments and questions have uh, been in favor of everything that you've been saying and with also, like me, greatly disappointed at the extent of the cover-up. And this is what Rita is saying. She says, uh, thank you, Dr. Klatt. So this has been very informative. I followed the press coverage um, at the time. Um, but didn't know and didn't realize the full extent of the cover-up. And, I mean, that's the general sentiment that's coming through. There's no question about it. The, the pre- you know, the, the one bunch that, that did an investigation when there was still some sort of journalism in South Africa was the Saturday Star. And, and one of their journalists was a fellow called Norman Chandler. Mm-hmm. And he was the chap who got sued by Arms Corps. Or rather... By what what happened was that that the Saturday Star was dragged before the press council, and the reason for that was to cross-examine everybody in prelude to launching a civil action against the paper um, by Arms Corps. Now you might want to ask yourself a simple question: What on earth is Arms Corps? They don't, according to Arms Corps, they didn't have a dog in this fight. Yeah. Yeah, And one of the most interesting things was at the press council, I gave evidence at the press council, okay? And um, all the hierarchy from Arms Corps were there. And the, the Margot's, Margot's sole effort to find out whether Arms Corps was involved was to write them letters saying, did you guys put naughty things on the Hilderberg? And of course Arms Corps wrote back and said, Judge, we would never do a thing like that. Mm. Margot accepted that. Hello? That's that's the height of naivety. Yeah. To believe that it was in any way, shape, or form an inquiry. I lied. I said I was going to ask you one more, but now I'm going to ask you one more again. Because um, this is interesting. <laughs> Someone's asking, there are many SAA uh, or former SAA employees that um, have information or possibly have links um do such people exist to this day? They do, but many of them were silenced. There were pilots that were prepared to speak to me, and, and I got in the car immediately and drove down in the middle of a storm to one in Bedford View, and by the time I got there, he changed his mind. Somebody got to him on the phone. My phone was tapped, and my secretary's phone was tapped at the time. It, has a big dis- it, it was a huge advantage for her because somehow in the tapping process, Number one, I never had to report when my line was out of order. It was fixed immediately. It was wow. marvelous. And the second <laughs> thing was that my secretary's son was overseas 
Uh, he moved overseas to England 30-odd years ago when all this was happening. And for some reason, it gave her an open line to speak to him. She used to spend hours on the phone to him at no cost. So, you know, it was... They were strange days in South Africa. Very strange days. Yo, David, uh, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to stay in touch with you because I might want to do <laughs> a second part in the near future. Um, maybe chat about the Red Book as well um, and the grenades and other actual essay. I mean, you seem to be very well versed in SA's history. Well, there, there are probably other things that you want to look at about mm. uh, uh, the goings-on at, at the time. Mm. I mean, one of the things that you need to have a really good look at is the murder of David Webster. Yeah. And, and, and the police involvement in the murder of seven young men called the Guguletu Seven, that's worth looking at. And in particular, something which still annoys me to this day, 30 years later, the murder of a young man called Ashley Creel in Cape Town. All right, that, well, that is that is something well worth looking at. Yeah, I'm going to stay in touch with you, um, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure. Okay. And and, and by who, the way, but twisted old liberal. Oh, uh, someone said that you're a, t a twisted old liberal. I I I think his name's Morton. I think. <laughs> okay, tell him thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're a twisted old liberal, then I think I'm even more twisted. And <laughs> listen, I am. I am. I am. To be honest, I'll end this conversation by saying I am persuaded by your by your argument. Well, give me a bit argument. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't have one. Thank you so much. Have a great day, David. Have a great day, everybody else. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.